a sports psychologist and an executive coach that currently trains some of the world's best golfers and leaders today. I teach individuals how to utilize their thoughts, understand their complex emotions, and make sense of it all to drive positive, lasting results on and off the golf course. This is the Master's Mindset Podcast with Dr. Matt. Hope you enjoy. Mr. John Bentley. Good morning, Dr. Matt Park. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to, to be able to have this conversation with you just to um, share, kind of give people an insight into some of the conversations we have on a regular basis. Um, I view you as uh, a mentor to me. Uh, I view you as a, as a close friend and um, someone that keeps me accountable as well. So uh, it's exciting for me to, to be able to share other, you know, share you with other people uh, that are in the community. So, um, you know, thank you again for, for making time to, to be here today. Um, oh, oh man, I'm, I'm so just humbled and honored the relationship that you and I have, have really, you know, we met a few years ago, but now just the relationship that we formed and, this accountability partnership has helped me grow exponentially in three to four months, what I would have never accomplished on my own in three or four years. So it's just yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Likewise. Um, you know, I, I want to share with the people listening in uh, kind of the first time I've ever met you, John. So I remember when Roger kitchen, he brought you into this training. Uh, it was a lunch and learn seminar training on the disc, the disc personality profile. And and I was familiar with the disc from my previous experiences, but I never heard anyone describe this assessment the way you did. And, and one of the most powerful things that I remember, and this was years ago, this was like four or five years ago. And I remember how vulnerable you were with us. These uh, group of OD specialists, these group of uh, practitioners who are doing leadership coaching and executive coaching, were all in this conference room and here you are, uh, a stranger to me at that time, and you walked in and you were going to present uh, to us on the topic of the DISC assessment, which I, I hope to dive into a little bit here today. And I just specifically remember you sharing your personal stories and your testimonies and, and how you used yourself as an example uh, to highlight some of the lessons in the DISC assessment. And Man, like that was my, that was really my first dose of uh, authentic leadership vulnerability. And it was, it was very, um, it was very memorable for me. I still remember that moment where you shared about some of the losses you've experienced in life, um, how you shared about uh, your, your mistakes and how you kind of recovered from those. So um, if you don't mind, can you can you share with us a little bit on your journey of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, you know, gr growing up, and I, I know my dad loved me. It, it seemed like, though, no matter what I did, it wasn't good enough. And I carried that into my adult life. And in a lot of ways, I was operating like a hurt child as an adult trying to work with teams. And I would always try to one-up people or do better than people or someone – disagreed with me. I, I thought they were trying to be smarter than me. So I, I would behave in ways that were what I call um, disruptive or, or, or um, another way I like to put it is I was at people instead of with people. And mm. I had an event that happened when I was 31 years of age, my 10 year anniversary, where a gentleman that I highly respected pulled me aside and shared a life lesson that really flipped the switch for me some he shook a Coke can and asked me to open it. And I told him no. And of course, the reason was what's in it would get on him and I and it'd be sticky. It wouldn't feel good. I think I even used the word nasty. And he put the Coke can down. And j just like a, a, a loving mother or father would do, he got down to my level and looked me right in the eye and said, hey, John, that's what you do when things don't go your way. And you think you're right. You've got all this talent, but this talent is going to get you nowhere until you learn to lead yourself. And if you can't learn to lead yourself, you're going to always struggle. You're going to be frustrated and you're going to limit your opportunities for success. So while the journey hasn't been easy from 31 to now I'm 59, what, what I 
agreed to do for myself is understand why do you behave that way, John? And and how much of that is really true? And what I found was none of it was true. It was the story in my head, a belief that I had that unless external things validated me, that I had no worth. Hmm. Hmm. So do you think there was a relationship for you of this growing up not feeling like enough to having to one-up people or uh, having to kind of prove yourself to the world? And and where are you with that right now? Yeah, you know, every now and then, and I would say yes to that, man. Absolutely yes, that, you know, I needed external validation for me to have value and worth. And, you know, that, that played out in my life and having to have, you know, the fanciest car, the nicest house, get that next rung on the ladder in positions for people to like me. And, you know, I finally realized that um, self-worth and self-value is an internal thing and that God has given me gifts to use that he wants me to serve others and glorify him. So do I still fall into that trap or I slip and trip sometimes with it? Sure, I do. But now, because I'm very clear on who I am, what my values are and what my gifts are, I have a foundation to go back to. And you know, just the other day, I got frustrated with someone and automatically said something to them that was hurtful and dehumanized them. And then right away, I went back to who I want to be as a person. I want to be approachable. Mm-hmm. I want to be teachable. And I want to be helpful. And right quickly, I was convicted, thank goodness, that in that moment, I was not approachable. I was not teachable. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't be helpful. And I went back and apologized to that that individual. And we are friends. And they said, hey, John, I understand you just had a moment. I forgive you. Mm-hmm. And that really meant a lot to me. Number one, for me to have the courage to go apologize and be who I am and want to live who I am, even though I know it's not going to happen always. I'm going to have those moments. But for that person to just love me and recognize that that my intentions were didn't come from a, a place of harm. It came from me feeling threatened for whatever reason. So it sounds like you have almost like a checklist in your head when you approach relationships uh, of who you want to be. So the three criteria that you set for yourself uh, and constantly keeping your, we started this conversation with accountability and you constantly keep yourself accountable when you approach your relationships of, am I, uh, am I teachable, approachable? Am I uh, teachable? Is that what you said? The second one? Approachable, and, teachable. And then uh, am I, what was the third? Helpful. Be helpful. Helpful. Okay. So, so then approachable, teachable, and helpful. And those are the three things that you constantly uh, kind of uh, evaluate yourself on in terms of having more effective relationships with the people that you encounter. That sounds yes. like. Absolutely, Matt. And really having a healthy relationship with myself. Because if I'm not approachable, there's turmoil going on. And, and I've made it about just me. And, uh-huh. and, and life can't be done alone. I, I thought it could. I thought that, you know, I was self-made. But, I, you know, thank goodness through this transition. And again, God has put people in my life to pursue me in situations who's taught me that one, three or four little lessons in my life that I can go back to. It's helped me to get to this point. And really, I've just gotten clear on being able to say those three things, Matt, just this year. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, going back to the Coke can analogy, I I know you're the one that coached me through that. And and you were saying how this this individual shared with you this analogy of the Coke can. And to me, I found it as a metaphor of, um, you know, when you shake up a Coke can and what spills out is basically a metaphor of life, right? Mm -hmm. So life happens to us. And if you're constantly not checking in with yourself, what's going to spill out on the outside is the internal internal stuff that you either are dealing with or are not dealing with. And and I see you as as an individual who's constantly learning, constantly trying new things, constantly um, learning about yourself and going within internally rather than this external pursuit. So where did that come from for you? Like this constant um, just drive towards learning and, and growing. 
you know, I think it really kicked in in my last three years in the Air Force, which from, was from November of 1999 to, to end of 2003. And I was fortunate enough to become an instructor at the Air Force Senior Non-Commissioned Officer Academy. So we taught leadership and management to the senior enlisted, not just in the Air Force, but all the Department of Defense and allied nations. And so imagine me being responsible for leading 12 to 15 people over a six and a half week course six times a year. Um, I, I went into that with, um, oh, I can do this. But there was also some fear there because it was a transition, right? I, I'm now teaching my peers who have all this experience who are going to rise up potentially to be one of the top enlisted leaders in the Air Force, top 1%, had to attend that class. And I, I think getting that breadth of knowledge in me made me more curious to understand, okay, I'm teaching this theory, but what does it look like when it's applied to my life, when it's applied to me influencing others, when it's applied to me uh, influencing myself? And then fortunately as well, I, I got to come on board as an Army civilian and facilitate a course called Leadership Education and Development. And I had the, the breadth of knowledge to facilitate that course, but what I really gained from that five-day course was a, a experiential learning, how, how basically you're you're facilitating people on a journey that they're going to get what they need from it most. So I didn't need to be the sage on the stage, the expert. I needed to be the guide on the side and be aware of what's going on and find ways to help people challenge their own thinking, which mm -hmm. in turn taught me how to challenge my own thinking. And mm -hmm. my, my definition of critical thinking, and it may sound crazy or funny, but I like to think for me, critical thinking is how does my thinking prevent me from thinking? Hmm. So critical thinking, how does my thinking prevent me from thinking? So how do I get in my own way? Because hmm. I'm not willing to take on different perspectives. Wow. Nice. So I, I love that. I, I, I love this about you, John, and, and it excites me whenever I talk with you because you, you take very uh, complex concepts or ethereal things into just basic step-by-step -step actionable things that we can do. So like that, critical thinking, we think of critical thinking, we can get into research, we can get into all these things, but you just boil it down to the, the three-word phrase is, how does my thinking prevent me from thinking? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's so think, simple. Think about how your thinking prevents you from thinking. Yeah, I love it. I love that. It's so simple. Um, how do you move through fear? So there, I mean, fear sometimes debilitates us. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be moving through a transition, uh, a career transition. It can be moving into um, in and out of a relationship. Like you've gone through many different transitions in your life and you coach a lot of executives and leaders, um, in your experience, how, how do you, or how do you teach people to move through fear? Well, w one of the things that's really helped me over the last few years is learning how to, what I call master my stories and crucial conversations teaches that piece. And that course had such a huge impact, just that module. It's really being able to, to stop and find out what's true about the story that's creating the fear in you and what other stories could potentially be true. Cause I, you know, when you think of fear, I can have someone in a vehicle pull over in front of me and almost hit me. And I'm going to have that emotion come up and man, I, I could have gotten killed there. And, but the same, the same emotions come up when we have a fear that's not life threatening. And, you know, just recently I was, I was coaching um, a leader and, and, you know, she, she was saying that, well, until he understands me, I'm not going to understand him. He's got to understand me first because I'm not going to be thrown under the bus. I'm not going to lose control. So those are fear type words. And, and, and I just asked, I said, let, let me ask you something. You're asking someone else to truly understand you when y'all are at a difference. What might happen if you chose to say, wow, what if I did understand him? What might I learn? How might I be able to influence him better? And if you change that story, what might be the benefit to you, your relationship, and the organization? And you know, you saw her just sit back. 
And and she said, I, I, I never thought about it that way. I said, so wh- what's your current motive with your approach and your thinking? And I'm not trying to make it right or wrong. Let's just talk about it. And and she said, well, I, I it's important for me to remain in control. It's important for me to be right. It's important for me to not be taken advantage of. I said, so does that sound like a motive that's all about you? And she did exactly like you did. She shook her head. I said, what if you changed your motive to seek to understand, to learn, to build the relationship and improve trust? How might you behave in that moment when you had that conversation next time with this person? Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, and speaking of it in fear, when I get fearful and I just kind of throw my hands up and want to quit, I've allowed that story to become so true in me that nothing else is possible. So what if I put that perspective on the table and said, what else might be true about this situation? And is it truly going to cause me harm versus me seeing what's real and how to work through it, around it and over it? Mm -hmm. How does one even begin to master their stories? That phrase is so powerful to me because stories really they're all around us, right? In narratives and on TV and movies that we watch, stories in our head that we create ourselves that feel so real. And sometimes it's really hard to separate facts from stories. How do you even begin coaching through the stories and and, and mastering them uh, for ourselves? Yeah, I, and I, I want to share as well for those that are watching and listening that you know, stories are how we make sense of the world, and the stories are created based on our perceptions of what we see and hear. So I think first got to define what a fact is versus what a story is. And a fact is something that you can see and hear. Like, you know, I, I, I can see now that, that, that you have a, a beard. I can mm-hmm. see that you have a teal-colored shirt on. Mm-hmm. Now, what stories might I tell myself from what I can actually see and hear right now? Mm-hmm. I, I, I could say, well, Matt's lazy. He's decided he's not going to shave anymore. I could say, Mm -hmm. wow, I really don't like that. That color doesn't look good on Matt. Well, those are stories I drew from those facts. Mm -hmm. So a story is something that we judge people by and we draw conclusions by. And uh, the biggest difficulty I had was recognizing that my conclusions were actual stories. But how did I get to that story? So I literally had to go back and reconstruct my thought process. And, and, and you're familiar with the great behavioral psychologist, Chris Argus. I may have said that wrong. He has something called the ladder of inference. And that is a great way to walk back down, especially if you're getting ready to do something that you don't know the outcome and it could cause harm. Before you do that behavior, say, what emotion am I feeling? Because my story creates the emotion. Right. Uh-huh. And then from there, what was I thinking that led me to that emotion and that story? And, and, you know, I, I, I think a, a, a great example of that was when I, I was leaving the Air Force transitioning out. You know, my family and I had safety and security for 21 years. And my only focus was safety and security. And I was also told by some of my friends that, hey, your best life's over. You've done the Air Force. And I kind of bought into that and just accepted the first job that I could get to make sure that we had the same lifestyle that, that we were accustomed to. So I was going to be making less money, but with my military retirement, it kind of was even. Mm-hmm. And, and I finally said, wait a minute, John, what else is possible? I mean, all you've done is, is thrown your line in, in, in the water. You've caught one fish and you think that's going to solve all the problems mm-hmm. and you're going to be happy. What else may be possible? And that's where I started saying, if I could, how could I? And that let me brainstorm ideas with some of my friends. And my main passion was to facilitate and work with groups to help them challenge their own thinking and improve their performance, either at home mm-hmm. and work. And I actually went out and, and found a job where I was able to come in and facilitate similar to what I was doing with the Air Force. So I didn't let the fear of, wow, how am I going to provide for my family and make sure they're taken care of prevent me from also being able to step into something that would make me be, help me be fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. So I I love what you said there about transitioning out of the military or the army and, um, and the air force and, and you were transitioning out and you're following this path of what was laid before you. 
And instead of just walking that path, um, like the, the rat race that we often get yes. caught up in, you were asking yourself some other different questions. Like why, why does this have to be my, my path and, and what else is out there for me? So you started to uh, ask yourself different questions that allowed you to pursue a different path. And I, I thought that was, um, you know, that, that right there is so helpful. Um, recently, my wife and I, we saw this documentary about this Korean woman. She's in her late seventies and uh, she, she built a thriving Silicon Valley business, a startup. It's called Lighthouse and it's about um, providing clean environments to the hospitals. And, but she started off with so much trauma and pain in her life. Growing up in Korea, uh, she was supposed to be born a boy, but she was born a female. And um, the, the grandmother, basically her grandma, disowned the father uh, for having a daughter because of, you know, at that time, having a male to carry on the legacy of the name was so important. And so um, she was then hated by her own dad and her mom tried to kill herself because she was born uh, a female. And, and I mean, talk about trauma being born and, and feeling like you're not supposed to be born or you're not good enough or you're not lovable. She grew up with this and um, she, she then left home and she came to the States and, and she started just cleaning, uh, you know, starting with whatever job she could and just, slowly started to rise up in uh, the social ladder. And she has a motto now. Now she's the CEO of a huge company and they have, they have, um, you know, they have locations all around the world. And she, she has literally built a culture where she starts every single staff meeting with a chant. And it's like a, it's like a football chant that they, they, they all kind of get up out of their seat and welcome her in and cheer each other on. And they say, he can do it. She can do it. Why not me? He can do it. She can do it. Why not me? And they keep chanting this over and over where it almost gets programmed to think, you think about your own life. Well, you know, he can do it. Well, she can do it. Why not me? Yes. And, and, and that whole belief or that the beginning of questioning that that pursuit of why not me? Like what's stopping me is something similar that you reminded me of, of your story of, you know, why can't I get off this path? Why do I have to pursue this? Why, why can't I do something else? So I thought that was really nice. That's wonderful, man. And you're also reminding me, I forget the quote exactly, but I'll find it and, and share it in the replay. There's a quote about how, you know, we travel all around the world to see all the wonders, but we never stop and look at ourselves and see how wonderful we are and what we're capable of. And th right. therefore, we, we never we never fulfill our potential by doing that. Oh, man. So, uh, you know, it, it's like, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. And we always we always look at other people's lawns and it looks so green and lush. And someone once told me, he said, if, if that starts to happen, why don't you just pick up your own hose and start watering your grass? Like keep yourself accountable. Kind of like what you were saying, how you've learned to do over time when you're dealing with um, going back to that recent moment of coaching that, that individual, that leader, and you started getting frustrated it was so easy to create a story and start blaming this person saying, you know, this person is being, this person is causing me uh, hell right now. This, you know, they're not listening to me. They're not coachable. You could have assigned all these uh, ill intent or, or assumptions and stories, but rather than pointing the finger at someone else, you decided to stop yourself and keep yourself accountable and say, okay, am I being approachable? Am I teachable? And, and am I being helpful? So those three things you started to check for yourself, which you can control. And yes. you changed your approach. And it changed that dynamic of that relationship in that moment, it sounded like. It did. A absolutely. Wow. And, uh, you know, I've, I've associated the acronym WIN with my, what I call B-values now. So, you know, and Zig Ziglar and the Army and others have said it's B-do-have. You know, I've got a B before I can do, before I can have what I really want from, from, from life. 
And the, the acronym WIN, the W, is I welcome diverse and divergent thinking because that's the way we can come up with the best solutions with whatever ever information we're given. And if I can do that, then I can inquire with curiosity. So the I is inquire with curiosity in order to seek to understand, to strengthen the relationship, to build trust. And then the N is never, never quit serving with your God-given talents, especially in difficult times. Mm. So, so th- that's kind of the, the behaviors that support me being approachable, being teachable, and being helpful. John, can we go back a little bit to yeah. what you said about be, do, and have? And, yes. and in that order, why, why that order? Well, I, I, the one thing that, that was clear to me growing up, especially when I thought I wasn't good enough, I thought I didn't have good character and that character could not be developed. And my your character is developed really through keeping commitments to yourself and knowing what who you want to be. And so once you get a foundation of, of a strong character, knowing sometimes you'll, you'll slip and trip within that, but that, that be who, who you are is the foundation for everything else that comes from you. Hmm. So the do part is the things that I will do, even when things get difficult, the behaviors, when they, even when they get difficult, that, that allow my foundation to support, which then lets me achieve the things I want from life. And if you ask most people what they want from life, it's not a lot of money. It's, it's not diamond rings, houses. It's not positions or titles. It's I, I just want to be healthy. I, I want to be happy. I want to have a loving relationship. And you say you can't buy those things with money. That comes from who you are, how you treat yourself and others to achieve those outcomes of what success in my mind really is. Mm. Because let, let, my grandmother, and, and, and I hope this doesn't sound harsh, she had no education, no formal education. And she always had these cute little sayings. One time I was upset, mad, thought I should be able to go get money to buy this car that's going to make me look good, you know, around town. And, 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 she, and, and again, I, I, I don't mean this to be crude, but she said, look, you came into this world naked. And you may go out of it naked, but most people are closed. And here's what she meant by that is you come into this world with, with nothing and you're going to leave this world with nothing but who, who people say you are. So now it's your reputation is all you're left with when you leave this earth. Mm. Mm. You know, in, in my encounter with working with a lot of high performers yeah. and, uh, and I've just noticed that there is this constant trend that I, that I see uh, among the, the highest performers in life. And, and you see this on TV as well. There's less of an emphasis on doing. And with the greatest achievers and highest performers in life, there's more of an emphasis on being. Yes. And, and rather than trying to do extraordinary things or do the next thing, like I, 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 need, to, I need to do this to become this. Great performers and top performers, they focus on the being part. Like I, I want to be grounded. I want to be more present. I want to be more mindful. I want to be in, in more of a state of gratitude. There's more of an emphasis on this being aspect. And then you see the doing just naturally falling into place. They're starting to achieve all the things that they achieve in, in results and outcomes, but they don't focus on that. Uh, and then you, you added the third piece of having. So they don't they don't start this journey to, to literally have all these things. They start this journey by beginning to focus on becoming and being who they want to be. And then all of a sudden the doing just falls into place. They start to uh, achieve the outcomes that they are. And then what's associated with it is the, the gifts and the accolades and all that stuff. But the focus on great performance is first on the being. So I, I, I really, I like that the be, do, and have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I, I thought that was great. Now, I oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I, I want I want to ask about two different things that I f- find you as the expert in. One is uh, crucial conversations, and the other is the disc uh, personality profile. I, I want to start with crucial conversations because 
um, that course literally kind of blew my mind too. And, and I feel like crucial conversations is something that a lot of us want to have, but we don't out of fear or out of messing up or out of not, not having the skills to approach difficult conversations uh, successfully. And right now we're in a state in the world where difficult conversations are often needed and, and we need to uh, engage in these tough conversations uh, with our loved ones, with our friends and, and with people that we encounter. So could you, John, could you coach us a little bit through um, just your experience of crucial conversations and some key things that we, that we might be able to kind of, uh, you know, learn from? Yeah, sure, Matt. And, and it really does go back to what I call the being part. I'm fortunate that, um, that you know, I've been able to uh, deliver that course to the Army, and that's the, the only organization I'm certified to teach that for is, is the Army. Yeah. And, and their model, it, it, it always starts with me first. Mm. See, it doesn't start on what the, the, the other person is doing. I've, I've got to look at me. You know, and even Stephen Covey's model, the, the seven habits of highly effective people, it starts with who? me, the individual first. And part of it is, you know, wh wh where are you stuck? And they define stuck as really being, where am I not solving a problem or getting the results I, I, I want from life? And once you get clear on that, it, is it, then it transitions into to get your motive right. So you get your head right with where am I stuck, very clear, specific, and then get your heart right has to do with my motives. Again, are my motives to punish, blame, be right, save face, which is all about me, or are my motives to seek to understand, to learn, to strengthen the relationship. And and once I get there, if, if my motives are right, now, now I'm in a being mode of we, and my motives are right, then I can choose the behaviors that will help me be successful in, in that conversation. Uh, you know, one of the things, the story that I always tell is my son that wouldn't keep his room clean. He was 16 and, and, um, Mom, my beautiful wife, Laura, showed him how to keep the room clean and did that two or three times. So now it's a pattern, right? And those are facts. What we talked about earlier, room's not clean. We can see it. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can see it. That's a fact. But it got to the point where I was telling myself a story, which now got into a relationship issue where he didn't respect me. I mean, you know, he's got a car. He's got a phone. He's got nice clothes. And, and, he, and he's taking that for granted, which means now you don't respect me. Mm. And now uh, one of the great big ideas from Crucial Conversations is if you don't talk it out, you act it out. Yeah. So I started acting out by learning to ignore him, giving little one word sentences. And part of it was because I, I didn't know how I didn't have the tools to have the conversation. So, so what I learned and I went back to is, you know, Mike is my stepson. I don't call him my stepson anymore. He, you know, he's my son. And then, you know, I, I look at um, his dad really didn't have much to do with him. Mm -hmm. And so when I started getting my motive right, instead of to punish blame and go, look, you're going to respect me. You look what I do for you. Now, you can see my tone and and I'm getting amped up right now just saying it. When I said, well, well what do I want for Mike? What do I want with a relationship with him? And thinking about him and his dad, biological dad's relationship, I said, I want Mike to be able to come to me no matter what he's done, good, bad, or indifferent, be able to share with me. And he knows that I will love him unconditionally no matter what. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to step into that conversation and basically mm -hmm. say, hey, Mike, you know, your mom and I have asked you to keep your room clean. It's been a year now and it, it continues not to be cleaned. Now, those are facts. And then I told my story, but not as a fact. Mm. Mm. I said, I'm starting to believe that you don't respect us. Mm. How do you see it? So you see, I, 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 I'm not saying it's true that you don't respect us, but that's what I'm thinking. And he, he became upset about it and said, no, 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 no. I didn't realize it was that important. I wouldn't have what I have if you and mom didn't do it for me. But, but you see how I had told myself a story and I had dehumanized him in some ways. And the very thing I wanted in a relationship from him, my behavior did not support that. Mm. Which, by the way, um, when, you, when someone does lose trust with you, mm -hmm. you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. Mm. 
So I had to learn to behave as that relationship was there, no matter how things were going. And mm-hmm. him and I have had some wonderful conversations every now and then. And he'll say, hey, can, can I buy you lunch or dinner? And we'll go out. And I know that he wants to talk about something. Yeah, I love that. Uh, so, so I think the biggest thing is, n- number one, we're not willing to have them or we don't know how to have them. But I'll share with you, keep trying them because it's like anything else. When you first start it, you got to think about it and it's not going to be perfect. Yeah. Not going to yeah. be perfect. Yeah. You know, I love what you said, just to kind of highlight the things that resonated with me. Uh, it starts with you. So it, it really does. And, and it sounds like when you're having difficult conversations, it's, it's really about starting with yourself, your, your motives, your intentions, your approach, uh, your heart, your mind. And it's really increasing the awareness of where you are starting rather than trying to create the stories and focus so much on the other person. You're really starting right here, things that you can influence and control. And that can dictate uh, the success of leaning into these difficult conversations. So I I love that. And um, yeah, go for it. Well, I think too, Matt, the one thing is don't always expect there to be psychological safety on the other person's part when you start having this. Uh, Naturally, we get defensive. And the the number one thing you must do is not talk about the content of the situation. So if Mike had become unsafe and defensive, I can no longer talk about the cleanliness of the room. Yeah, I've got to then say, Mike, my intention is really just to understand why you don't clean your room. That's my whole intention. I'm not here to fault blame or tell you you're bad. I'm just I'm trying to understand. And yeah. then then once you see the safety restored, then you can step back into the actual content around that conversation. Yeah, uh, I, I love that. Now, John, can you also coach us through the disc? Now, yeah. some, some of us who are listening to this right now may have never heard of the disc personality behavioral profile. Sure. And um, and I'm wondering uh, how do you even begin to describe uh, this assessment to people if they've never heard of it? Yeah, I, for, for, for me, it's it's a model of, of normal behavior. Okay. And just a quick history lesson, Dr. William Moulton Marston wrote this book in 1928. So it was around, again, emotions of normal people. So if we think about it as a model and, and look at it in, in kind of a, a quadrant, with four panes, you have D, which is dominance. And what I mean by that really is not where you overrun people. And the normal behavior is overcoming opposition to get results. So it's very direct, very fast paced, but task focused. Okay. And then the second quadrant, the influence is again, very direct and fast paced, but their focus is on the people now bringing people together to accomplish a task. Mm. The lower right-hand pain, which is S for steadiness, people focus. So, you know, they share that with the influence, but they're more thoughtful and careful. So they're not going to naturally speak up like I would being a direct person. They want to think about what they're going to do because what's important to them is stability and harmony and supporting a team. And the C conscientious behavioral style is shares the thoughtfulness with the steadiness style, but they want to think before they speak because they want to be right. They're all about precision and accuracy and they're all about the task as well. Mm-hmm. So, so we are a combination of all four of those styles to a greater or lesser degree. Mm-hmm. And here, here's how it helped me. It helped me learn how to have a non-judgmental conversation around my behavior because it gave me the language to discuss it versus mm-hmm. saying, well, 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 that's just who I am. Well, now I know why I do that. More importantly, besides knowing that, it also allowed me to recognize when I was overusing my strengths, Mm -hmm. when when they weren't called for, and how I behaved under pressure. Mm -hmm. And how I behaved under pressure is what would cause me to slip, trip, and fall. And here's the way I like to describe the overall model. And, you know, a couple of my friends and I have discussed this and came up with behavior is a choice. Mm. Now, who chooses your behavior? And I like for people to say, I do. I choose my behavior. Now, if we think about a continuum with payoff on one end and cost on the other, my behavior has a payoff when it's helpful to me and others. 
And there's a cost when it's hurtful to me and others. Mm. So we deliver our behavior, our chosen behavior, and it's similar to us being a vehicle. So all our life experiences are transported through our chosen behavior. Mm. Mm. Now, if, if I was to describe me as a car, a vehicle, based on my behavioral tendencies of being fast-paced, and I'm also love to involve people, but I love tasks, I'm a combination of the dominance and influence. I'd be a 1968 candy apple red Camaro with a 396 super sport engine. I'm powerful. Mm -hmm. I look good and you know, I'm coming. Mm -hmm. Now let's put that in context though. So I I get on the interstate, I 65 to go to Birmingham. I can probably do 78 miles an hour without getting a ticket. You know, I'm powerful. I look good and and I'm moving, but Mm -hmm. invariably there's going to be orange diamond shaped signs that are going to show up on I 65. There might even be an arrow flashing, and both of those tell me that the the environment has changed. So what's the most successful behavior that I should choose in driving my behavioral vehicle? I'm still that 68 Candy Apple Red Camaro, but I turn down the stereo. I roll up the windows. I back off of my accelerator because I want to choose the behaviors in that environment that are helpful to me and others. So I call it CYA, and that's not cover your it's challenge, mm-hmm. it, it's check your awareness. I, I've constantly got to be like a thermostat, knowing that I want to keep a safe environment psychologically for myself and others. And I want to regulate that environment as the outside environment changes or situations occur mm-hmm. that could cause me to not be approachable, not be teachable, and not be helpful. And I want to use the behavior that's appropriate for that person, that situation, that environment. Mm. I, I'd love your feedback on that to see what you think about that. So I, I'm pulling, I'm, there's so much going through my mind right now. One, I'm just imagining you being this hot rod uh, going down, <laughs> driving 80 miles per hour down the street. Uh, but you said something that really stuck with me. Uh, we, we have natural behaviors, natural tendencies, and we also have these adaptive behaviors and learned uh, tendencies where we can CYA, check your awareness. And instead of approaching every situation as that hot rod, maybe it requires for you to be aware of your surrounding, the people that you're encountering, to maybe tone that down a little bit, to approach it where you're not revving it up down uh their residential neighborhood you're you're in the streets and it's seven in the morning and instead of blasting your music and showing off and revving the engine you're calmly approaching these streets because you're in a situation that requires you to be adaptive and i think that's what successful leaders successful uh, individuals who do relationships well Uh, They're constantly checking their awareness of what's required of me. And what I'm I'm hearing you say is with the DISC profile, we have the D, the dominance, the I, the influence, steadiness, and conscientiousness. We have these four distinct uh, personality types, but we're a combination of all of them. So, yes, I may be this hot rod, this action-oriented, task-oriented, D, dominant uh, personality, that's a natural tendency of mine, but I can also stretch and flex to yeah. be more uh, accommodating, to be more humble, uh, to be a little bit more gentle in my approach so that I can have more successful relationships uh, in, in conversations with people. So I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm digesting all the things that you've said. And, uh, and so for me, I, I'm a, I'm an S. I'm a steadiness. So I'm like the quiet Prius, right? So I'm a I'm a like a hybrid. I, I love I'm I'm relationship oriented, but I'm more you know gentle. I'm more tactful. Even my tone. I'm I'm I just you know I'm I'm a counselor. So it, it requires me to be that empathy, that listening ear, the good friend. And honestly, John, I struggled with that all my life. I, I thought of being an S. Um, there's also different interpretations of, of being an S. Yes, there's strengths, but there's also perceived um, 
perceive things that other people from other quadrants may perceive me as being wishy-washy, right? Indecisive, um, taking too long to do things. Uh, you know, I, I have a hard time deciding. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I was at Toys R Us, uh, and every time I go to Toys R Us, at the end of my visit to Toys R Us, uh, I would always break down and cry because my mom would always say, pick one toy, and I couldn't pick one toy. I, I, I wanted the whole thing. You know, I had like like seven toys in my hand, and I was like, I want all of them. And she said, you just got to pick one. And, and I couldn't. Uh, because I'm so conscientious of so many different factors. And when I go into a meeting room, I'm so hypersensitive and aware to other people and what they're feeling, what they're emoting, uh, their affect. And, and I care so much about them that that influences a lot of times, you know, my own opinions. And, and, and so these are weaknesses that I, I really want to work on, that I continue to work on. Um, but then it doesn't mean that I can't stretch and flex into a different quadrant to be more dominant, to be more. And, you know, when I'm taking charge um, of a meeting where my family or people that I care about are on the line, then it requires me to uh, pursue these adaptive behaviors that I can learn. So I love that. I love what you said. Well, thank you for adding so much to that. And if if we have time, I'll share with you how I used it in a work setting. Just one example as a leader. Yeah. And uh, a young, not a young lady, Miss Miss Carol Bergantz worked for me. She was in her 60s, a single mom, very strong and could be counted on no matter what. And she was the CD style. So she's very task focused. Once she knew what right looked like, just get out of her way. It was done. And we were doing a training needs analysis and she wanted to learn how to put the formulas in the spreadsheet to automatically do calculations and she said, and you're going to teach me. Well, I, I had an option, right? It's a, I can say, no, Carol, there's an online course for learning how to do formulas. Go do it. But I recognized that's not what she wanted. And also, it wasn't what she needed. Hmm. And I said, oh, okay, Carol, I, I want to teach you. Let's, let's go ahead and do this. Even though I knew it would take a lot of energy from me. And she, she always had what she called the book of all things, where she wrote everything down, which is still being used today in that organization. So, you know, over her glasses, she went, well, here's how it's going to go, John. You're going to call out all the steps. I'm going to write them down. Mm-hmm. And then once we write them down, I'm going to call them out to you and you're going to do them. Mm-hmm. Now, if everything's right there, cool. You're going to call them out to me and I'm going to do them. And then you're going to watch me do them on my own without saying anything. And if I got it, I don't need you anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and so we did that. When I called out the first step, she said, that's not one step, John. That's three. All right, Carol, <laughs> write down three steps. The bottom line to all of it, I spent 45 minutes with her doing a task that I had been the only one that knew how to do. She had it and ran with it for over four years, and it freed me up to do what I love to do, which is strategy and being being visionary and thinking about what ifs and then bringing people together to flush that out. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, for me, there was a payoff there, not only in, the, in getting the task done, but there was a payoff in strengthening the relationship and building trust. Because here's what I know to be true. Yeah. Is you build trust through behavior. Mm-hmm. I can be tr- I can be say I'm trustworthy all day, but if my behavior does not reflect in your mind whether I'm trustworthy or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So you build trust through behaviors. Yes. Yeah. So action. You show me trust. I I love that. I I I love that because trust is such ethereal thing you know with when working with organizations they just want to build more trust and but you build trust through behaviors and, and you got to show me to prove it right so. Yes. so with you being the highest behavioral style if i was your leader i couldn't just run in and delegate tasks to you that you were unsure what the plan looked like to how you could support it so yeah. over time you would lose trust in me because here he comes again with another crazy idea and i don't even know where to begin yeah and yeah. so it's it's having that conversation with, uh, hey, hey, Matt, here's the task that I want us to accomplish. What do I need to provide for you as far as resources or maybe even directive or supportive behavior that can help you get on board? Because here's what I know about you, Matt. When you have a plan, I can just get out of the way because you know how to help me and be a great team player. Yeah. So th- it's that type of language that I've learned. And, and what I what I want to ask people to do is don't just take the disc or any personality assessment, become a yeah. practitioner of it. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's what I'm most proud of for me 
is um, I, I, I'm a practitioner of that model because of the impact it's had on me and relationships with others. Yeah. You know, uh, um, recently kind of transitioning out of the disc and onto a different uh, sure, topic sure. because this, this is something I feel like we collectively uh, are going through. And I know you personally work a lot with the healthcare professionals, people on the front line, our current day heroes and superheroes. Um, my, my wife introduced me to a recent podcast that Brene Brown did with David Kessler. And, and David Kessler is, uh, he is a protege of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh, they, they wrote a couple books together on, you know, uh, basically Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, has the stages of dying, uh, stages of grief. And David Kessler uh, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross really focused on uh, death and dying and grief and, and unpacked this whole uh, concept that's often very scary to look at, which is grief. And uh, there's five stages to grief, you know, the denial, uh, the, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, and then the acceptance. And David kept saying that it can't end there. Like acceptance is just not enough for me. And, and so after Elizabeth Kubler-Ross passed away, uh, David uh, got permission from the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation and her family to add a sixth stage, which is meaning, mm. uh, meaning making, finding meaning out of um, not making meaning out of this particular loss and death, but how can I uh, make meaning for myself? And he was very influenced from Viktor Frankl's work, you know, A yes. Man's Search for Meaning. And, um, and he explained that Brene Brown asked David Kessler in this podcast interview, like, what are we going through right now today with coronavirus? And he said that we are uh, experiencing this collective grief process of what was normal. If you think about all the different losses and they're accumulative, like, you know, uh, when he explained when 9-11 happened, uh, we're going to say after the 9-11 happened, we're saying, you remember how airports used to be before 9-11? Yeah, right. Like where we could just kind of go right in line. And, and he's, he says, we're going to come to a time where we're going to say, do you remember what life was like uh, before this pandemic hit? Like where we were able to shake hands or were we able to kind of hug each other or we're able to, um, you know, collectively have meals out in the public or we're, we're able to go to worship and, and collectively worship together. Like he was saying that we are experiencing this universal collective experience of, of grief. Mm. And, and so um, I want to, I want to ask you how you have been able to move through or, experience grief yourself and how you how you found meaning uh, from the different experiences of grief that you might have experienced in your life well I, I would say one of the biggest experiences of grief I, I had if, if, if it's okay that I share this is my uh, passing of my 28 year old daughter it'll be 10 years ago this December um, and I remember having a phone call with her the Friday night before we got the news she had passed and um, and the conversation, you know, was like, you know, I love you, Dad. She sounded sick. You know, she had some health issues and, and got the phone call the next morning. And uh, I had some regrets around it because um, I wouldn't step up and connect emotionally to what was really happening. You know, I kind of denied that. Um, and I, to make me feel okay while that was going on, was I would help her financially. And that made me feel okay. And it also told me in my mind that she felt okay about me. Um, but, but when she passed away, it, it, it really, when you think about that loss and everyone that it impacted, her sister, her son, who was five years old. And for me, for the longest time, instead of dealing with the grief, I, I overate. I poured myself into work. So I did everything I could to prevent from dealing 
and working through that transition. You know, I do like this as a model through that grief. Um, but the aha that came for me, Matt, was was um, after I'd read her Facebook page where 60 people had posted who she what how she showed up being as a person. Hmm. At, that she had the natural gift to sit with you and make you feel like you were the most important person in the world and helped you show your true value. You know, when I read that, I, I, it, it, it made me recognize I didn't know what her gift was and she was my daughter. Mm-hmm. And that kind of held me back a little bit as well. But then um, I, it was put on my heart what the word gift means. And it's God's image fulfilled talent. So it's an acronym for God's image, fulfill talent. So Matt, you are made in God's image to fulfill your talent in service to others, which glorifies God. Now, uh, uh, over time, what, what I recognize from that too through this is, is God showed me that I had an identity crisis, that I still was living in the world and not truly living in Christ, even though I'd been saved and so what I heard here maybe two years ago, which related to me, is, John, you surrender just enough to be saved, but not enough to be discipled and allow God to grow you more Christ-like, which is what he's doing. And that'll be complete the day we die and show up in heaven and lay our crown before him. So, so I, the meaning and the purpose that I have now is how do I help everyone recognize their gift? How do they learn to accept and love themselves? And even more importantly, do I stop? and know what their gift is and find a way to love them based on their gift. Cause I think too many times, and I'll speak for me, I don't know if it relates to anyone else. I want to know other people's story so it can confirm what I think is wrong with them <laughs> versus understanding their story. So God can show me how to love them in a way that he loved them. <laughs> and so uh, just recently I've got a gentleman helping me. We're putting the manuscript together for the book. Mm-hmm. You are a gift. Mm-hmm. And so I think through this last nine to 10 years of grieving, learning to grieve, learning to grow, you know, being okay with the uncertainty, not holding myself accountable for what I think my regrets are, which would keep me a prisoner, which prevent me from being a pioneer for the future, is the meaning is that the most important thing I can do in life is use what God's given me to serve others and help them recognize their worth and value and what God wants to do for them so they can then in turn serve and love others because they've learned to mm-hmm. accept and love themselves. Now you know how to accept and love others. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where the, I, I found meaning in my daughter's death. And, and, and I'll share with you, my, my, my daughter that's living has been able to adopt Alex. He's 14. He's flourishing. Wow. Krista was told she'd probably never have children two years into having Alex temporarily and then into uh, to finally getting him full adoption. She was pregnant and delivered twin boys who were seven. And I I think, uh, you know, when when God calls us to rejoice always, I think what he's asking us to do is to lean in and say, hey, I got you through this and we're going to use it so you can become more Christ-like and you can further my kingdom while you're on earth. And when I get you up here to heaven, you will truly be like Christ. Oh, I love it. Oh, my goodness. Um, John, just as a common thread, as we summarize, the thread that I'm hearing today from our talk and our conversation is it started with the Coke can analogy that life is going to happen. It's going to shake us up. And if we don't work on our internal self on the inside and our internal workings, then what spills out after you pop that open is what is on the internal state. So you always constantly, even with the disc, with crucial conversations and engaging in difficult conversations and approaching the leadership is always just starting with yourself, your intentions, uh, checking yourself to see if you're approachable. Am I being approachable? Am I being helpful? You know, am I being teachable? All these different things. And this focus on being, focus more on the being rather than the doing, because the doing will fall into place and the having will fall into place when you just simply focus on being who you want to be. So John, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I hope you have a lovely afternoon with your wife and, and uh, I, you know, I I really appreciate your friendship and, and your mentorship to me. So this means a lot. So I appreciate you.
Same here, Matt. It's an honor to be with you and learn and work with you. Thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing our friendship and relationship. All right. Thanks. Take care. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Mastering Mindset Podcast with Dr. Matt. Mastering Mindset is a training platform where we continue to train individuals and teams on how to master their thoughts, their emotions, and their behaviors in life so that they can ultimately master their performance. Stay tuned for more.